Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, as we read today from verses 1 through 4. Hear now God's Word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth, and you fathers... Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Paul has, we we just finished seeing how Paul has applied the doctrines of the book of Ephesians to husbands and wives, and now he is going to turn to make similar application to children and parents. There are responsibilities and duties for both, but the greater responsibilities and duties are for parents, especially for fathers. Your children's obedience and honor are the product of your training them every day, uh, and primarily that is done by example. Not primarily by words. That is one area, of course. But it's primarily by what you do. Your attitudes, your vocabulary, your behavior provide the default template for your children. No doubt they have picked up some of your virtues along the way, but your vices will likely be theirs as well. They might or might not look like you physically, but I am certain that they act like you. And by you, I mean their father and their mother in some combination. Whatever your sins are, maybe you're too soft or too harsh or bitter or sullen or pouting or angry or arrogant or yelling or cursing, whatever, then your children will probably, I've thought about this for the first time, in this sense, they will probably obey you. Children obey your parents. In this sense, children almost always obey their parents. They do what they're taught. That's what they know. And so God says that he will visit the iniquities of the fathers upon children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. John Piper, I thought, had a good observation about this. He said, The sins of the fathers are punished in the children through becoming the sins of the children. So it's just natural to take up those sins, to, for those, again, to be the default, the thing we do under pressure. And so unless there is a self-conscious Effort under the power of the Holy Spirit to make changes in that, it is likely this is going to continue for multiple generations. And so we must keep the primary responsibility and duty where it belongs, and we will be addressing this more fully in weeks to come. But I want to start this morning, as the text does, with the children. Children, your duty is rather simple. In fact, there is really only one command with two parts in the Bible, for children. Obey and honor. And honor is just an extension of obedience. Children, obey your parents. Honor your parents. That's it. That's your whole job. 
Every day. That's it. And your responsibilities are whatever your parents tell you to do. And whatever responsibilities they give you. When societies start to crumble, one of the markers will almost always be children who are disobedient and disrespectful to parents. Lack of discipline equals lawlessness. Now, let me just note, overly stern and harsh parents can, or legalistic parents, can produce a backlash of rebellion as well. But again, we'll deal with that in a few weeks. The Bible tells us, though, that when God is forgotten, then it is inevitable that it will be seen in the children. In Romans 1.18 and following, we find a description of the disintegration of a culture, one that we've heard many times here. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, so they're forsaking God, God gave them over, this culture, to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgments of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. They're in this long list of horrible things of a disintegrating culture, stuck right there in that long list. Disobedience to parents. Again, in 2 Timothy 3, 1-5, But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. There again, in the middle of this horrible list, disobedient to parents. And the Apostle reminds us that in times of apostasy, the foundations of society are shaken. And we'll see the most obvious example of lawlessness in the disobedience of children and the disrespect of children toward their parents. This means that Christian parents and Christian children have an obligation and an opportunity to stand in stark contrast to the world. In fact, I believe this is one of the most powerful means of evangelism. An attractive, lovely home where parents and children are doing what God has called them to do. We are called to be salt and light in this particular area. Your family should be a lighthouse. And so after Paul commands children to obey their parents, he immediately follows that by citing the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. To honor is to respect and to show reverence. And so this is far, far more, kids, than external obedience, mechanical, begrudging obedience. Okay, I'll do it, but I'll do it with a sorry attitude. No, You see, 
That's not obedience. Sorry attitudes are themselves disobedience because it is disobedient to dishonor your parents. God says to honor them. Not just obey them, but the honor part speaks to an attitude. Respect. And so even a, a grudging outward obedience with a, with, a, with a sinful, rebellious heart is not obedience. And the fifth commandment, the fifth commandment itself, as we read the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments deal with God, and then we kind of have this abrupt change. Honor your father and your mother. And now the, there are three of the commandments that deal with the family. Honor your father and mother, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, etc. So the family certainly uh, plays a central role, according to the Bible. And like each of the other ten, the fifth commandment is foundational to society in general. It's not limited to the family, but rather it has a much broader implication and application. In other words... If children are to do this with their parents who have authority over them, the implication is that we're all to do this. We're all to obey and honor all those who are in positions of authority. So there's an extension here. And so all of us are children. We all have a heavenly father and an earthly mother in the church. And then we are all placed in various relationships where we have a hierarchy. Some of Some people are in authority over us in the civil realm, in the church, in the school, wherever we go, in our jobs. And so parents, listen, parents who allow any disrespect to any legitimate authority at any time are undermining their own authority. When you allow any disrespect to any legitimate authority, you're undermining your own authority. When your children see and hear you showing disrespect, that is, not honoring authority, they are learning from you, and there they will obey you. Antisocial adults were not taught a balanced view of the Fifth Commandment. Children who are taught to obey the Fifth Commandment are, in fact, you can spot them. You know how? Because those are children who are a joy to be around. They're a joy to be around them when they're children, and they they grow up to become adults that are a joy to be around. The whole issue of superiors, inferiors, and equals, not as persons. God's no respecter of persons. We're all made in the image of God. But in terms of the positions that we occupy and the various relationships that we have, we're either a superior, an inferior, or an equal. And the Westminster Confession addresses this, or the, the, the larger catechism in particular. There are those who are in authority, that is, those who are responsible for those who are under their care. And then there are those who are under that authority, that is, they have a duty to obey and honor those who have authority over them. When either party disregards their responsibility or their duty, then trouble begins. So you can have someone who's in charge that's not doing their job, and all chaos begins to break out. 
Or you can have someone who's supposed to be under authority, who's rebelling against that authority, and a different kind of chaos ensues. So listen carefully. Since this applies to every single one of us, I want to read the larger catechism questions 127 and 128. So think about what position do I occupy in the home, in the school, in the church, in my job, in society? as a citizen or a governor or some office holder. What is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? What does the Bible say about this? You say, I'm a Christian. I want to do what God says. I want to be the kind of son or daughter or mother or father or brother or sister. I want to be the kind of student or teacher or administrator or pastor, or elder, or deacon, or church member, or king, or governor, or citizen, that God wants me to be. What is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? Listen carefully. Great description. The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, Prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity or faithfulness to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority. That means we're going to speak well of them according to their several ranks. And the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities, that those who have authority over you except for God are not perfect. They will sin. They don't always get it right. God knows that. And, he said, and the scriptures tell us that you are still to honor them. Bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love. So that they may be an honor to them and their government. That's your job, is to be an honor, to honor those who have authority over you. That's your job. Question 128, what are the sins of inferiors against superiors? The sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required toward them. So when's the last time you prayed for your parents and your teachers? and your administrators, and your pastor, and your deacons, so forth, or your boss. If you're neglecting that, that's a sin, because that's what's required of you in order to honor them, is to bring them before God, to ask God to protect them and bless them and give them strength and wisdom and all the things they need to do their job. All neglect of the duties required toward them, envying at Contempt. You ever hold somebody who's got authority over you in contempt? I just don't like them. You ever mumble under your breath at your mother or your father as as they told you to do something you don't want to do? That's a sin. Rebellion against their persons and places in their lawful counsels. And if what they're telling you to do is not a sin, it's a lawful counsel. In their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections, cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage 
as proves a shame and dishonor to them and their government. Parents who understand this and children who have been properly trained in the fifth commandment simply produce a good society, a good family, a good school, and a good church. The family is where we first learn to live in terms of God and our neighbors. It's where doctrine and discipline are established. And the spillover to the church and the school and the world are enormous. Abdication or tyranny at home, I'll say it begins at home. Respect or contempt for authority begins at home. A godly home will equip them well. The evidence of such godliness is a well-adjusted human being that's full of joy, full of confidence, and humility. They know how to play well with others. They've learned what it means to sacrifice themselves for the good of others. They are pictures of what it means to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So why should you honor father and mother? Well, at first glance, this may seem odd. In the Ten Commandments, we go from commandments concerning honoring God immediately to a command concerning family. The state and the church are both much larger and more powerful institutions. Why are we not commanded to honor the leaders of the state or the leaders of the church? What is it about the family, the parent-child relationship, that gives it such preeminence? One of the primary purposes of the covenant household concerns the raising of children. As Malachi writes, but did he not make them one? That is God having a husband and wife, having a remnant of the spirit. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. He insists on our households producing godly offspring or else we will not enjoy His covenant blessings. Throughout redemptive history, we see either God's covenant blessings or His covenant curses coming upon people based upon their obedience to Him, which, by the way, is an act of faith. It's not raw obedience. It's not legalistic obedience. It says, God, I believe You. I trust You. I love You. I want to follow You. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. So this is an act of love when we obey God. And when uh, his people are faithful, that is, obedient, or unfaithful, that is, disobedient, not full of faith, not believing what God says. And how do we know they don't believe it? Because they don't do it. It's that simple. Those two are connected. And so when fathers are either faithful toward their children and children toward their fathers, or unfaithful, we see dramatically different results. As Abraham was commanded to do what? He was to command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord. That was his job. Command it. Insist upon it. Require it. Implement it. And so we must understand that the law is the perfect expression of that very justice and righteousness which Abraham and we are to teach. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. 
Love for God is expressed, as we said, by keeping His commandments. It is not some vague or sentimental standard that God requires when it comes to our households. It's His Word, His Word alone, that is to provide the instruction. Think about Timothy, the baby. Timothy, born to his mother, his mother and grandmother's home who were Christians. His father wasn't, but this mother and grandmother began to teach him the Bible from the very beginning. From the time you were a nursing baby, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. That was the self-conscious teaching and standard. And, he's, and Paul said, as a result, you will be equipped for every good work. Isn't that what you want for your children? For them to be equipped for every good work? Then your standard, parents, has to be God's standard. Now, the importance of the parental position is inferred from many spiritual truths. We may see it especially from the place it occupies at the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Malachi closes the Old Testament with a command and a promise. Here's the command, Malachi 4.4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel with the statute and judgments. Remember God's word. The promise, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming, uh, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So things were bad when Malachi writes. And God says, if you don't return to my word, and if you fathers don't get busy doing what I called you to do as fathers in regard to your children and turn your hearts toward them instead of yourselves, and stop dealing treacherously with your wives and treating them like they're some kind of piece of property instead of the wife of your covenant and your companion, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to curse the whole culture, the whole society. Now, he said, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. We're going to see in Luke that, in fact, that was John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1. And how do we know? Because when we get to Luke chapter 1 and the angel, the Abriel, appears to Zacharias and he's prophesying about the coming of this baby that's going to be born, what, who, what is quoted is this passage from Malachi in application to John the Baptist. And it is he, this is Gabriel to, to Zacharias, it is he who will go as a forerunner of him, that is Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteousness, so as to make a people ready and prepared for the Lord. That's what the gospel does. Abraham, command your household to keep the way of the Lord so that I can bring a blessing to the whole world. Well, over the years, Israel forgot that. So God tells them to close the Old Testament. You better go back to what I told Abraham and start implementing that. And in fact, that was what the gospel was about. And that wasn't a side note, a footnote, an extra, a bonus. It was the very heart of what the gospel is supposed to do to families. It is to transform us, to glorify God, to be a light to the world... And, to, and, and that's to be seen primarily in the relationship between parents and children and grandchildren. It is not only central to the immediate work of God in the lives of those individual families, it is vital to the long-term perpetuation of the kingdom of God from generation to generation 
and it is vital to a godly and healthy society. And Malachi tells us that it is necessary to prevent the coming of the Messiah from being a woe rather than a blessing to men. The revival of family faithfulness alone prevents him from coming to smite the land with a curse. We should see the importance of the parental position in spiritual matters from the fact that this issue provides a connecting link then between the Old and the New Testaments. Let's consider what's required by this father-child relationship. And I would just note, I've said this many times before, the role of mother is an extension of the role of wife. So husband and wife are one. So from the children's perspective in the Bible, father and mother are one. But the father has the primary responsibility. He's the husband. The wife is the helper to the husband. He begets children and she gives her husband children As far as the children are concerned, as as I said, father and mother are one. One authority. They represent God. And what is required in this father-child relationship? Fathers and mothers are the first authorities under God. They represent Him to their children. And thus, it is absolutely essential, fathers and mothers, that you tell the truth about God. What does it mean for fathers to have their hearts turned toward their children? How does this attitude of the heart manifest itself? You are to teach your children what God looks like. His justice, his mercy, his patience, his tenderness, his kindness, his forgiveness, his grace, his holiness. We could go on. In a day where so many children are afraid of their fathers or who despise their fathers, what is missing from our households? How shall we avoid having our land smitten with a curse? The promise of the new covenant, the gospel of Christ, is to begin or renew this gracious work of familial affection. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the enemies of his household. And so we might think, well, that seems to be a contradiction. Yet what Jesus is saying is the first thing I do is I come and I separate life from death, dark from light, belief from unbelief. The initial saving work of God often brings division to unbelieving and unfaithful households. Yet this is the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the setting apart. The next generation should witness a major turning of hearts of the new, the new sanctified household toward one another. You may only marry in the Lord. You begin a new household. You build uh, that is built by the Lord and raise up the next generation in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And so let's consider, as we conclude today, how we might see the glorious fulfillment of God's promise in our own household. The key concepts pictured between God the Father and God the Son. The Father is the begetter, the initiator, the teacher, the provider. The Son is the imitator, the representation of His Father. The Father can be known by the Son. The Son brings glory to the Father's name. Fathers are responsible for bringing their children into the world. 
This is why men, in my view, who impregnate women and then abandon them and their children are an abomination. These children are made in their image. When Adam lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. We all recognize that children carry the physical image of their parents. The children also reflect the nature and the character of their parents. And while Eve may have sinned first, it is through our father Adam that we inherit our sin natures. Adam was responsible for all of his descendants. And you fathers are responsible for all of your descendants. Given the fact that all of our descendants inherit our sin nature, it is our responsibility to bring them to God's work of redemption to provide the remedy. Otherwise, we have only begotten children for hell. As earthly fathers, as was true with husbands, it's true of fathers, we represent the Heavenly Father. And we either represent Him truthfully or we make a false representation And so, girls, let me say something to you a minute. You better be extra careful about who you marry. Because your children are going to be like them. Many a son spends his life trying to live up to his father's reputation, but sadly many sons spend their days trying to live down their father's reputation. Like father, like son can be a blessing or a curse. Many a daughter marries a man she respects because she respects her father. And likewise, many women hold men in contempt because of neglectful, unfaithful, or abusive fathers. They expect husbands to be like their fathers. So the link between fathers and their children is close. As they say, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Consider what the Proverbs say. He who, begets a fool, he who begets a fool does so to his own sorrow, and a father of a fool has no joy. A foolish son is a grief to his father. A foolish son is a destruction to his father. He who keeps the law as a discerning son, but he who is a companion of gluttons, humiliates his father. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who begets a wise son will be glad in him. A man who loves wisdom makes his father glad. We could go on and on with these parallels and these connections. Fathers, if you don't like what you see in your children, look to yourself first. They are a reflection of you. You may not notice your own weaknesses, but if you see those weaknesses in your son, say, I just looked in the mirror. If you walk around all day and don't look in the mirror, you might not notice that smudge on your face because you can't really see it. But when you look in the mirror, there it is. So when you look in your children, look at your children and think, that's me. Maybe it's an immature version of me. It's a young version of me. Or worse, it's a magnified version of me. This poor boy, that's all he's had is me. And now he's taking what I... I have covered up and hidden from myself, and he's showing it to the world. Are they righteous and wise? Are they kind and self-controlled and patient? Do they bring you honor or shame? You cannot escape the responsibility of your children. 
You have begotten them, and the responsibility for them is laid squarely at the source of authority and power. And so you must see to it that they honor God the Father by honoring you. And when your heart, this is the key, when your heart is devoted to God and truly turned toward your children, it will be easy for your children to give their hearts back to you and back to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your commandments, for they are not burdensome, but are rather the expression of your great love for us. We are your children, and we owe you nothing but obedience and honor. Help us as parents to start by demonstrating that obedience and honor toward you, so that our children will see what it looks like. Forgive us for being disobedient children and for showing disrespect for, for any authority that you have placed over us or over our children. We pray now for all those in authority, that you would strengthen them and grant them your wisdom and grace as they must deal with us and with our children. Prosper them. Moreover, I pray for every parent that they would be encouraged to patiently love and lead their children in the everlasting way. And I pray for every child in this church that they would love to follow in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What if Jesus had not been obedient? Galatians 1, 3-5, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present, this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus honors the authority of his Father through complete obedience. A very clear but seldom pondered truth of the New Testament is that Christ's entire life and ministry were orchestrated by his Father and that Jesus was careful to carry out every detail according to the will of his Father. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Hebrews 10, 7. Even his coming to earth was an act of obedience to his Father. His life and ministry focused on the will of the Father. John 14:31, that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. All that Jesus did and said was exactly what his Father wanted him to do and say. Again, John 12:49. For I did not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say and what to speak. All that Christ did in his life on earth was done according to the Scriptures. What God had spoken in the Old Testament was so authoritative that Christ obeyed it completely. Matthew 21:4. Now, this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. It is strange to think of Christ, the perfect Son of God, having to learn anything. Yet the Bible clearly tells us that he learned obedience. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, Hebrews 5.8. We know he did not learn obedience because he was disobedient. Then why did this happen? He learned obedience experientially so that we could have an older brother. Jesus is called the firstborn among many brethren. 
a high priest who can be fully sympathetic and empathetic with our situation. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. I was thinking about this. Can you imagine? Not just that Jesus was perfect and sinless, but that he's God. And he has Mary and Joseph, who are not. Sinless? No. Nor are they all wise, all knowing. They're just human beings, fallen human beings. And those are his parents. Do you think there was ever a situation where Mary or Joseph told Jesus to do something and he knew better? What do you think he did? He obeyed. These are my parents. Yes, ma'am. I don't know if he said ma'am, but if he lived in Texas, he would. (laughs) He gave the equivalent. He was obedient. Even to people who sometimes weren't as smart as he was. And in his case, they were never as smart as he was. And yet he was always, always obedient. And he always honored his father and his mother. When we come to Christ for help, we know that he will be sympathetic to our needs. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. And so as we come to the table today, let us go to him. Let us remember why he came. Remember his example. Remember his humility. Remember his obedience so that we might be imitators of Christ and know that when we are struggling and when it is hard, And when we are failing, that he loves us and that he is there to lift us up, to help us, to sympathize with us, to come alongside of us so that we might move forward. And so let us contemplate those things today as we come to the table. O Lord, may we be faithful in teaching your law to our children as you have commanded and conveying to them the necessity of teaching these things diligently to their children so that generation after generation may love you and serve you, and that each generation may improve upon the last. Keep our children from making the same mistakes that we have. Enable them by your grace to learn from our sins as well as from our positive example and teaching. May we experience the truth that your righteousness is to children's children, to all who keep your covenant and remember to do your commandments. By your grace, may we learn from those mistakes of those of our own parents and the generations that have gone before us. Father, your long-suffering and compassion are beyond our comprehension. The fact that you can forgive our continual wandering in thought, word, and deed. Keep us from being like Israel, whose heart was not steadfast toward you. Give us constancy in our walk and consistency with you before before you day after day. Help us to draw near with our lips and to honor you with our mouths. Israel was not true to your covenant. May our whole life be characterized by faithfulness to your covenant. Help us to be obedient children. All our hope is placed in you, our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Bless now our rest and our feast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen.